and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network where we dive deep into Wildbo's most underappreciated work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Morehouse. And we are back to round off Arc 2 damages with Chapter 2.Y, another interlude. Yeah, but this is sort of the first traditional interlude in the sense of how I think of interludes from the Parahuman series, which is just another character's sort of point of view or backstory. Well, maybe the interludes, the traditional interludes in Pact are just textbook excerpts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> so this chapter, 2.Y, we get into Maggie's backstory. Um, and she kind of actually summarised this for us last chapter when she said, I came from a place that was falling through the cracks, and just like goblins might go after someone who's slipped through civilization's secure embrace, they'll go after a location. And it was bad. Bad enough that not all of us made it out. Yeah, and that's a pretty good... TLDR of this chapter, really. Um, it, yeah, it's it's interesting because this chapter doesn't really go back to the present like at all. Like we get what's maybe fifty words dealing with the the Molly incident from yeah. two months ago, but really this is this entire chapter is based right um, back when she was you know when her town was overrun by these goblins, and it really kind of relies on the information you got on Maggie from the previous chapter for you to sort of tie those two things together. There's yeah. no section where we, you know, see, say, the most recent events from Maggie's point of view. It's all um, sort of left a bit up in the air there, and we're very much just getting... We're, we're meant to draw those lines ourselves, I think. Yeah, it definitely doesn't make any explicit kind of justifications for what she did. Um, it does kind of explain why why she is so desperate for power and why she's in the mindset that she is that leads her to make that decision. But it doesn't, like, really go dive into it any more than that. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, so this story begins with <laughs> with Maggie in school. And I guess let's take a moment here to kind of point out one of the things I like the most about this chapter is it's a very small town. It's very much like... Obviously, bad things happen during this chapter, but yep. before each bad thing happens, we really do get this picture of a kind of small town life that Maggie is living. Um, yeah. It's quite nice. It's a nice <laughs> life. Yeah, definitely. Uh, each each segment starts out quite positive and devolves. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> it reminds me of Heather's. I'm just going to say it because <laughs> she Maggie hates her friends. Interestingly, her friend Heather. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, Maggie really doesn't like the fact that she's in high school. It, we kind of meet uh, her friend Heather, and Maggie's just kind of brushing her off and not wanting to hang hang out with her. Um, yeah, it's very much friend in in quotation marks. Like I'm I'm, I'm doing the little bunny ears thing whenever I say friend uh, in relation to Maggie at the moment. Um, but I think sort of you know because this whole chapter exists to dive into Maggie, and I think the recurring impression that I got out of this was that Maggie's a bit of a natural fit for the world of practicing, honestly. Like she was already kind of halfway there, and and we're seeing that right now. Like this this first bit is establishing she's a bit of a loner, um, and not necessarily in a sad way. Like you know, she has people who wants who who want to be her friends. She's just kind of like ah, like fuck it, like I'm fine with who I am. Like it's which is you know probably a good headspace to be in as a practitioner. Yeah, and not just that. The first kind of incident of this chapter is uh, somebody has left a, a man-shaped pile of meat outside of their high school. Um, <laughs> it's horrifying, but Maggie kind of sees the tide of people moving away from it, 
and goes to take a look. She's like naturally curious about it, um, you know, yeah. and she can stomach it for the most part. It kind of gets a <laughs> bit worse and she can't handle it. But for someone who is like, you know, entry level practitioner, she clearly has a stomach for this kind of thing. Yeah. And I love the way that this meat statue is introduced <laughs> um, because it's like she she just starts off being like, oh, and this is what normally happens when we all leave school, but that's not what's happening. And and there's, you know, it's like a couple of paragraphs between of Maggie just saying, you know, this is what normally happens and this is what's unusual today, but we don't even hear what's unusual until like a fair way in. And then it's suddenly, oh, it's a meat statue. Oh, yeah. and it's shaped like a man. Oh, and it's already rotting. Like it, 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 she sort of notices more details about it, and we see we see this a bit more explicitly later. But it's like at first glance, a normal human doesn't really appreciate how horrifying this is, and it takes her yeah. quite a while of looking at it to actually process how fucked up this thing is. And you know, because then we find out there's a living dog inside it. Um, yep. Uh, yeah, and it's just it, it's sort of it takes a while for someone to actually appreciate how awful this is. Yeah, and it takes a while for Maggie to find that. Uh, she kind yeah. of is, you know, checking it out up until the point where the, there's a live dog inside who is has its neck kind of bound with wire bit to trap it inside. And this, we don't really find out what happens beyond that because Maggie can't watch it anymore. She's too disgusted. Um, fair. Yeah, fair enough, to be <laughs> honest. Um, so she kind of looks away and notices a man watching who seems out of place. Um, and she takes his picture and he just immediately notices that she has taken his picture. No flash, no noise. Mm. He just locks onto her, basically. Yeah. Um. It it's it's cool because because obviously it's introducing. Like we, we immediately peg this guy as a practitioner because we sort of know what's going on. Um. Mm. But I love how this is also giving us like like Maggie's quite perceptive. You know, like this is this is again I think hitting that that recurring theme of. Maggie's a bit of a natural fit for this world. Like she sees a horrifying meat statue, and part of her reaction is to just look around and see if someone's doing something weird, which is like, yeah, yeah. I'd be, I'd be vomiting in the corner at this point. Um, yeah, well, she, she very consciously makes the connection of like, oh, this was made to get a reaction. Well, therefore, someone must be watching for that reaction. Who's around? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's really um, clever of a really, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so it, it, it's balancing that thing of telling us he's a practitioner and letting us know that, you know, Maggie's pretty bright. Like she sees that something's up with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Maggie takes a picture of him. He drives off, but he's clearly pegged her. Um, we jump yep. forward a few days and th- this kind of chapter has a number of just kind of jumping forward every so often we've jumped yep. forward and Maggie's talking to her dad and there are brief mentions of some of the bad things going on in town just to kind of set the backstory. But mostly it's just them having a really nice, wholesome family <laughs> conversation. Yeah. I found this bit very reminiscent of like a zombie film or, or, or you know, any, any sort of uh, global catastrophe film where you've got the radio on and it's it's talking about all the bad things. And as the viewer or listener or reader, you're like, oh, God, like, put the pieces together. And they're just like, oh, man, this is pretty bad, but nothing new. And they switch it off. Um, and, and it's, you know, sort of giving us a bit of an insight how normal muggles, uh, you know, yeah. not, not Maggie, just to kind of like, oh, and, and they just they just switch it off. Yeah, which is a beat that we get a lot during this chapter. And I think yeah. one of the main things that this chapter is saying is that nomadges or muggles' inability to perceive, you know, 
others and the the supernatural really fucks them over a lot in situations <laughs> like this. Um, maybe yeah. we'll get into that a bit later. Um, I like what you put down. So uh, there's a quote from from the radio uh, that I'll read out here. The police chief stated, it would be fitting and appropriate if we did prove it was the work of out-of-control students to hold back their diplomas until restitution could be made. Yeah, well, I like I, what you wrote about this I, section. I, I <laughs> loved this because... Uh, just as soon as I read Police Chief, I started, think, I started thinking of lead. And I know that this is almost certainly not lead, but I couldn't help but notice that this statement does seem factually true. Like, for someone, if the police chief does know that this was, like, goblins or whatever, this statement is not false. And it seems so awkwardly worded that I have to believe that this police chief is a practitioner as well. Um, <laughs> or is it... I, I thought that after, you, after I read what you had written, but thinking about it, it kind of... This is just kind of the double speak that that kind of happens when you're dealing with the media and it's a case that isn't quite solved. I don't know, maybe it's just kind of covering his ass a bit. It, yeah, yeah, it could be, but it definitely jumped out to me, probably because of the the connotation of police chief that that Laird's put in my head. Um <laughs> Yeah, and it would be fitting and appropriate if we did prove this to <laughs> yeah. do this, which is very practitionary. Yeah, um, it's it's very non-committal. But um no, this this scene in the car is is great. Like I love Maggie clearly has this great relationship with um, all three of her parents, um, yep. but in particular her biological father. Um, yep. Like I love this bit. She's constantly trying to be like a shitty smart-ass teenager um, throughout this whole car conversation, and he really one-ups her by trying to turn it into a sex talk, which is just hilarious. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it's pretty good. And, and really gives you this sense that there's not actually any real like animosity between them. They're just two yeah. people who are actually really close and they kind of liked playing off of each other. Um, yeah, I want to pull out something that I noticed later on in the chapter where we never learn Maggie's dad's name. She always just thinks of him as dad. And I think that's an intentional choice because there are places where it could have made sense to just refer to him by name, such as when Maggie is overhearing a conversation between two other people, one of them being her dad. But I think the fact that he's just her dad is so important to to kind of emphasize hey these two are really close and yeah, it becomes well, very relevant later on <laughs> and and especially because like she has two dads like like just using yeah. the term dad should probably be a bit more ambiguous than it is um so i i think you're right i think it's really the fact that we don't know his name yet is really used to establish how close the two of them are mm. um so we jump forward again, and things have clearly gotten worse. Um, her dad's <laughs> joke about forming a kind of carpool of walking students has become a reality, and now all the kids kind of walk home to one of the kids' homes together and hang out there for a few hours until they can get picked up. Um, clearly, the adults don't feel comfortable having the children out and about. Yeah, which is like, this is only like two days, and really since the school thing, I think it's only been like four days or something. Yeah. So like, this has sort of escalated quite quickly, and you, you can't help but think, like, I, at this point, I'm like, I, I'd be the hell out of town by now. Um, but it seems like that's not yeah. a super common thing to be doing yet, so it's 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 kind of strange, because you, you you're hearing how bad things have gotten, and you're thinking, why have you not left yet? Why haven't they left? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, again, it kind of comes back down to justifications, right? Um, yeah. We get Chris and Maggie's dad talking about, oh, this is the town we always wanted to live in and, you know, and kind of like half-heartedly defending why they should stay. Um, well, you can think, if you, does... didn't, if you didn't know it was a goblin invasion, you would, <laughs> and you did just believe that it was some, like, restless teenagers or, 
or drunks or angry people, it's kind of reasonable to believe it would die down pretty soon, I guess. Mm. Yeah, but even that, it feels bad. It feels bad, and it feels like the characters in this story, they rationalise it away because it's supernatural, and because of that, they don't kind of see the whole the wholeness of how bad it is, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but, you know, this this scene starts out nicely, again, like I mentioned. <laughs> it's like normal kid stuff. It's nice. It's kids goofing off. There's some Mag- Maggie does some really funny jokes where she pisses off at basically everybody. Like, yeah, yeah, it's some classic teen banter um, between, you know, friends. Again, I'm, I'm doing little air quotes. Um, yeah. Because, you know, Maggie seems to get on with these people fairly well considering she doesn't think of them as friends. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, it, you definitely get the sense that she just kind of... She can get along with anybody. She'd just prefer not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, so then stuff goes bad. The kids are heading back to Ben's house to kind of wait to be picked up. And they are stopped by the man who was watching. Um, and he basically demands that Maggie deletes the pictures of him that she took. Um, and she refuses. She she basically <laughs> gives him a lot of sass. And it seems like things are going to get really bad until a neighbor kind of steps in. Yeah, I think it's really when the guy, the practitioner has to fight the neighbor that he figures the karma isn't worth it or something. But um, mm. yeah, again, this is this whole scene just really reinforces like how naturally Maggie fits into this world. Like she starts criticizing the guy's phrasing, like when he doesn't quite answer questions. Um, she tries to yeah. like negotiate and make a deal. Um, like she's kind of being very practitionary without even knowing about yeah. it um and you know it's just kind of badass as well yeah she she does very well um they kind of fight the man a, a few kids versus the man and he <laughs> seems stronger than he should again just kind of hinting <laughs> that things are bad here yeah um the neighbor comes in he kind of runs off basically warning maggie that she's gonna get really badly hurt um making yeah. it sound a lot like a threat for someone who is kind of trying to help <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, we don't really get this guy's whole story, but, um, like, Hero, even given what happens at the end of the chapter, Hero seems like a bit of a strong word, maybe, uh, for all of his actions. Mm. Um, what's interesting after this, though, is, um, I guess because, like, Maggie seems a bit wounded by the fact that they needed to be saved and that, you know, she couldn't win the fight herself or even with her friends. Mm. And so she kind of starts bad-mouthing the guy who saved them and her friends, call her out on this um yeah because she just kind of says some unnecessarily bitchy things about about the guy um yeah. and, and like sort of calls him a pedo and stuff and and gets called out on it and I, I think this is just sort of showing that she's not necessarily or you know her reaction can be to double down when uh when her yeah. pride's on the line yeah yeah i mean she is a child right like she she does well in this scene to an extent but She's a child, and she acts like a child at times. Yeah. Um, so they they get back to Ben's house, and there's a bit of lighthearted hanging out, but things quickly go wrong again when Maggie walks in on somebody who has seemingly killed Ben and his mother. Um, this person yep. threatens Maggie with a knife, but she kind of gets away, breaking through a window and, and kind of jumping out this first-story window to get away. Again, this is badass. Um, but... Uh... It's cool because Ben and his mum are never described as dead. She just describes them as lying face down on the bed next to each other, which is just yeah. such like it, it's a it's such a wrong image. Like, and, and I immediately yeah. and I imagine most people when they read this, you're instantly like, "Well, they're dead." 
Well, um, they did, yeah. <laughs> but, but Maggie never quite sort of clicks to that. And I think this is tying back to what we see uh, later and what we saw with the meat statue where she doesn't quite process it exactly. Like, you know, it's just, oh, they're lying down. Then she's like, well, that's not right. And she never seems to make that yeah. leap to they're hella dead. Um, it's just like, yeah, it's just, you know, she doesn't quite process it, uh, at first glance. Yeah. I mean, jumping forward a bit, it does seem like the, the things that the others are, are, um, involved in has this effect of just being less able to be processed despite it not being anything that out of the ordinary, like two people being dead. That's a thing that happens in our world, but Mm. just because it has some association with goblins, it seems like they're less able to, you know, conceive it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Maggie jumps out a window and gets away, and, and we kind of jump forward again. And things are just getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> um, her dad and Chris, his husband, are arguing about whether they should leave town or not. And Maggie makes a vow to never feel this powerless again. And I think this is a key moment for her. Oh, yeah, definitely. This entire little segment exists solely to make this point. And I think this is why it's one short standalone segment because yep. I think Wabo really wants us to understand that this is something that's important about Maggie is that she's going to refuse to feel powerless. Yeah, she's relentless to an extent, you know? Yeah. Um. Yep, again, they should have moved away by now, but <laughs> let's not hit that point too hard. Uh, yeah. I, I, just, I don't know, I feel bad for this town, you know? Like, they're oh, just I, I... unable to... Yeah, yeah th- these are all victims. <laughs> like, just yeah, they're very unable literally. to process what's happening. They just can't conceive of it. Anyway, <laughs> we'll get more of that in a bit, I think. Uh, so we jump forward again, and there's a council meeting, a neighborhood watch meeting, and Maggie's dad is going to go. And Maggie feels that if he goes, he's never going to come back, and they will make justifications for why that is, but he- they will never see him again. Well, And because we- we've seen her... Like, she describes how she's doing this as well. Like, she keeps telling herself, oh, Ben's fine. Everyone that I left at that house, they're all actually, they're fine. I just haven't seen them for the last few days, but it's for other reasons. So, like, she, yep. she's doing this too. And, like, she's she's even like, I, she keeps telling herself that she believes it, even though she clearly sort of doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is clear that she's kind of on the journey of breaking that cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So uh, eventually Maggie convinces her dad that they should all go to the council meeting together because then at least whatever happens, they'll be together. And Maggie kind of called it, right? Like she knew that the meeting was going to be useless. Um, I want to read out a quote here where Maggie is basically internally contradicting everything that they say. Um, So somebody says, lock your doors. Maggie thinks Ben had locked his doors. Leave your lights on if you have power. Stay in touch with your neighbours and let them know where you're going and if you're leaving and brush off with excuses and justifications if they disappear and don't leave a message. Um, yeah, yeah, it's... It's, it's great. <laughs> she's really just hammering home that these people have no idea, um, and they're just just saying what needs to be said to kind of make themselves feel better. She's almost channeling that that, that anger you have at the clueless people in horror movies. Um, you know, I've sort of said this feels a bit like a zombie movie, this chapter. Um, and she's just sort of, you know, this they're being like oh just lock our doors and it's like that's not gonna fucking work um yeah yeah people did that it didn't help what are you doing don't go (laughs) over there no don't don't recite the creepy ritual yeah quick let's split up (laughs) yeah well i mean that's what her dad 
explicitly <laughs> wanted to do. Um, yeah. Anyway, the the meeting is kind of interrupted when Maggie notices the the creepy man b- from before, kind of beckoning her outside, and she heads outside mm. with her parents. And the man kind of reveals that he has been trying to help, but things are just going to keep getting worse, and they need to leave if they want to survive. Yeah, and, and and this is like sort of a big moment because essentially for this entire chapter, Maggie has been thinking of this guy as the bad guy. Um, yeah, justifiably, to be honest. Oh, yeah, no, he's been suspicious and, and kind of aggro. So, um, but like, she even sort of says, I wouldn't trust if you said you're not an enemy. And he's like, oh, I get that, but like, this is way worse than everyone thinks, and you guys need to get out. And it's like, the second he sort of validates that concern she's been holding on to, she's just like, no, okay, and just immediately deletes the photos and gets the hell out. Um, it it's great like this this complete 180 she does mid conversation where just the second this guy stops being aggro and it's just like you know uh, confirms all of her worst fears she just gets on his gets on his level and just bails and tells what he says which really makes you think he could have been a lot more effective if he had just talked to them before <laughs> right i mean like i guess he couldn't yeah, let them in on it and he needed them to feel it but you know um mm. anyway so maggie and her dad's go to escape but of course they are intercepted by a group of in air quotes people that seem off um maggie (laughs) maggie notices they look off and her brain is so overcome with cognitive dissonance that she just kind of ends up looking down at the ground because she just can't look at them and she doesn't even realize why she's doing that she's just just like oh well i'll just look down here i guess yeah and the interesting thing is her parents uh or her dads um who are with her still seem to clock into it a bit faster and they're like oh this isn't normal um which is interesting because maggie seems to have been ahead of everyone else with the uh, with the rest of it like knowing that this grander series of events wasn't natural but she Mm. seems to struggle when she's really face to face with it um a bit more um, yeah. With, with stuff like when she's face to face with the unknown, she was struggling a bit more than uh, when when she knows what's going on. She seems very competent. Maybe it's. I mean, I think there is a bit in there about children kind of willing to believe fantastical things, but still kind of deferring to the authority of adults in the end, right? Maggie definitely feels like the defiant type that actually kind of just plays along sometimes, you know? Yeah. True. Um. Anyway, the the uh, leader of these goblins steps forward, and Maggie realizes all the illusions fall away and maggie sees they are goblins Um, yeah and the goblin lady leader kind of comes towards them to fuck them up but the practitioner kind of intercepts he he offers himself up in exchange for letting them go and the goblins do not take this deal they break him yeah i was a little unclear on exactly how all of this went down um i guess i'm still not fully clear on exactly how full-fledged practitioners work in practice um mm-hmm. like so she seems to not accept his offer but then he seemed pretty confident later that she would have to so i don't i don't fully get it but the interesting thing seems to be he like donated all of his good karma to the the remaining civilians in the hope that it would help yep. them survive which um based on what maggie's sort of hinted at later on probably doesn't really work out so that <laughs> sounds like this guy really didn't really didn't work out in the end uh for him yeah, um, so this guy kind of gets really badly messed up. Not killed yet, but basically <laughs> taken out to the point where he's not really a concern anymore. Yeah. Um, and then the Goblin Queen offers to let two of them go. They will kill one of them and let the other two go. And, you know, right in your head as you're reading this is what Maggie said last chapter, 
where not all of us made it out. And so you think, oh, okay, this is what's going down, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, um, I, I guess I cheated a little bit. I remember she's referred to having two dads before um, as well in that <laughs> chapter. So uh, I, I, I kind of, I was like, well, unless she gets out with one of her dads and they moved on very quickly or she got two new dads <laughs> and she moved on very quickly, uh, I, I yeah. think we're safe. But uh, yeah. Um, that's fair. What actually <laughs> happens is uh, her dad argues that Maggie and Chris should be the ones to let, be let go. And the goblin lady basically buys that he loves them the most. And so tells him that, you know, she'll let him live and she'll kill Chris and Maggie just to fuck with him, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Um, But Maggie doesn't let this happen. She says, I will do anything if you let us all go. And the goblin woman agrees to this, stating basically that what has happened here will happen two more times to Maggie. Um, And with that kind of lets them go. Yeah. And so what's interesting is this goblin lady doesn't it says it may not be her but that maggie in the future or twice more will experience like blood and darkness and fire now i think when the goblin leader said it wouldn't be her again she may have meant future goblin leaders or something because i don't know how much control mm. this this goblin leader has over the future but i can't help but draw a connection between maggie being an ally with blake and this concept of blood and darkness and fire recurring in her life because that doesn't yeah. seem like a good Wait, I don't think Blake should be hanging out with people who have essentially been <laughs> prophesied to be around blood, darkness, and fire in the future. Yeah. Um, um, not not yeah, just because definitely... <laughs> because of all these nukes he's sitting on. It doesn't seem like a good idea for them to hang out. Doesn't bode well for old Blake. Um, but <laughs> I get the sense that this goblin queen, basically saying this will happen two more times, she's kind of <laughs> just like dropping a you know dropping a hint at what's to come later in a way that the universe will just kind of make that happen, that's what Maggie agrees to, right? Maggie agrees to having terrible things happen to her twice more. And I don't know why this works out for the Goblin Leader. I mean, it's hinted that that gives her an avenue to potentially be involved with those things, but it kind of just feels like she's fucking her over again, right? Like, not really doing it for any point, just wanting to fuck with people. Well, I think from the way the practitioner sort of reacts to this, like he calls Maggie a fool for... a sorry he calls maggie a fool for agreeing to this yeah and so i mean i can't help but feel that you know it it is tying directly to the goblin leader's ability to do stuff like you know she will be involved or something but uh yeah it's it's definitely it's going to come back into the story i can't help but feel like this (laughs) this will be Um, a thing uh later in pact yeah um so the practitioner basically uh, calls her a fool. Maggie takes his notes, and the practitioner's like, "No, no, stay out of this. Like, the more involved you get into this, the worse things are going to be for you." Maggie does not take that advice. <laughs> no, and of course, like we we've had this thing hammered hammered into us about how she doesn't want to feel powerless again. So of course she's not going to. Um, no, but also I can't help but feel like the practitioner's probably right, and she shouldn't. So it's yeah. Yeah, the practitioner explicitly says, like, the more powerful you are, the more powerful this oath you've just made is going to be. And that means the worse that things will be. Don't mm. don't awaken. <laughs> but she does. Um, and we finally jump forward one more time to Laird saying to Maggie, you know, I don't know too much about prophecies, but things are going to happen bad two more times and they can happen on their own or we can kind of make them happen. And Maggie says, oh, what should I do? And Laird tells her about Molly. Hmm. Um, yeah which again given this whole context i you can see a bit more why maggie was willing to uh make this sort of deal 
Uh, I'm not saying it fully justifies it or anything, but it certainly puts it all a bit more into perspective. Um, yeah, but to we play we definitely advocate. Well, yeah, it is like Maggie. <laughs> you can easily imagine that fighting a diabolist could count as one of these blood and darkness and fire occurrences, right? Um, so it makes sense that she would do it in a situation where she feels like she's got backup, but. I don't know. Well, I also just think she's potentially making a deal with Laird where he'll help her manage these two other repeats, which is important because, you know, whole towns could die and, you know, you could make a pretty good utilitarian type case for killing Molly in exchange for having Laird help you manage two towns worth of destructions to limit fatalities, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's true. It, yeah, it, we, we definitely don't still have all the details on, on all of this. Yeah. Yeah, it gives us we more we have details on why Maggie is who she is than what yeah, actually it's definitely, the blood and fire and darkness is going to be. It's it's more of a character study on on Maggie than anything else this chapter. Um and that ends the chapter. That's the end of Damages 2.1, not just the end of the chapter, the end of the arc. Um Yeah. But before we talk about the arc overall, what were your thoughts on this chapter, Elliot? Um yeah, I mean, I loved it. Uh, I was already sort of loving Maggie uh in 2.7, so and before that, so it was great to see that she's sort of the first character that gets a deep dive through an interlude. Um mm. and you know, it was a little it was a little standalone zombie film uh basically this chapter uh and it was great. Yeah. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about this chapter was just the relationship between Maggie and her dads, like it's just so wholesome and lovely, and it it makes the stakes of this interlude feel real, even though we kind of know that the characters in it mostly end up fine, or at least Maggie does. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, let's talk about the arc as a whole. Damages. What what do you feel was the point of this arc, Elliot? So it's interesting because even though this is arc two. I think this is still an introduction arc. Like, I think arc one focused on, you know, here are the major characters, uh, like, you know, Blake and Rose and, 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 and I guess Laird and um, other Rose. And then, um, mm. you know, also here here's the major plot points on, like, magic and, and the major other players. And then arc two is kind of like, okay, now that you've got the general idea and you understand things a little bit, now you're ready for the real shit and it hits us with spirits, with karma. Um, yeah. We actually meet all the people and, and it's very much, it's like the introduction plus plus uh, <laughs> Yeah, it. I would say it feels like arc one is about the people and arc two is about the world, right? Um, we get our... our our uh, implements and domains and familiar textbook. Um, <laughs> we learn more about vestiges, how that works. We learn about karma and spirits, as you said. Um, yeah, it, it definitely still feels like Blake and Rose are, are finding their feet a bit. Um, hmm. Hopefully they will actually not be on the back foot for once soon. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. eventually we might reach the stage where they're acting on things they were already familiar with before it tried to kill them. <laughs> Um, let's talk about damages, the, I, the word, why, why is this the arc title? Um, sure. so obviously the obvious meaning of damage is things get damaged. Um, <laughs> and in this arc, Blake gets <laughs> damaged pretty good, uh, <laughs> physically with the fairy fight, emotionally with the Maggie stuff and, uh, the kind of damaging of the bond between Blake and Rose getting worse and worse. Um, that's one potential yeah. meaning of it. There's a lot of literal damaging uh, going on to, to various things <laughs> Property in Property damage, art. yeah, all kinds <laughs> of things. Um, but I think the other meaning of damages, the one that we kind of touched on, the legal meaning, as it were, um, is relevant here too. Uh, it, it's, it basically means 
if you're awarded damages, you're awarded a sum of money or some kind of, you know, um, be- benefit, I guess, <laughs> in compensation for some kind of injury that you suffer, right? Yeah, well, so um, you'll sue you'll sue someone for damages. Um, yeah. And, and, I mean, I I think that, that meaning definitely ties into the concept of karma, uh, as we've seen it in the second half of this arc. Mm. Um, uh, I think, you know, there's a concept in this universe of uh, karmic damages being awarded to people or taken from people uh yeah. to make up for bending the rules yeah i i think that's what the arc title is saying i i think it also kind of works for maggie's interlude when we're talking about the deal that she's made with this goblin queen but specifically i think this arc is trying to point out here's karma here's the world this is how it works uh, in the introduction to what's going to happen later yeah um well, before we wrap up the episode, we want to loop back around and talk about some of our favourite answers from our discussion thread uh, from last chapter where we were talking about people wanting to volunteer implement ideas for themselves or for fictional characters. Yeah. Um, do you want to start us off with your favourite answer, Elliot? Sure. So um, I picked an answer from a user named Sarah Penguin. Um and this was a very, very thorough uh, answer, so I can't go into all of it, um, but I think there'll be a link in the show notes uh, for this episode. Um, Sarah Penguin's been doing a lot of very thorough uh, comments in our episode threads, which has been, they've all been great. But uh, in this one, mm-hmm. they've picked a, a pendant as their implement. And, and you know, the, Sarah goes into a bit of details on this, but I thought the, the bit that I really liked was... Um, Sarah Penguin's gone through all of the materials uh, that they would make this pendant of. So things like iron and and gold and specific gemstones to kind of try and convey specific powers uh, onto it beyond the standard declarative and authoritative and sociocultural things that you would get from just a, a normal <laughs> like pendant, which I, I think overall, you know, you could compare to a ring or, or some other worn yeah. uh, piece of jewelry. Um, so I really like this idea uh, of, uh, you know, trying to put iron into your implement in the hopes that it would make it more effective against things like fairies and goblins. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, Almost to the know. point where I... I think that maybe there's a reason you can't do that because it's such a good idea that everyone should be doing it. Um, yeah, it feels yeah. like the kind of conceptual equivalent of trying to min-max your character in like D&D <laughs> or something. And it yeah. alone makes me think that this just couldn't, wouldn't work. <laughs> like in an actual Wild Boy story, for some reason, this would just go wrong and you kind of know it. Like, oh, maybe it's really good against others, but, you know, they're going to get murdered by some other practitioner or something right um yeah i'm not sure but it was it was such a great idea i really loved uh reading this comment and thinking oh that's a good point it was very well thought out that's for sure Um, yeah i I picked out an answer by a bisexual punch party who said that their (laughs) implement would be or maybe just an idea for an implement would be a chef's knife um and i think this is one of the reasons why i like the idea of implements because it just lets you examine the associations of everyday objects, right? In a way that you never really do in real life. Um, So this comment is talking about how a chef's knife uh, is a very specific implement. It has implied expertise, but only in one very specific context, which is just a great little uh, idea for being a Mm. practitioner, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. And uh, there's some other stuff in there about how chef's knives can kind of form things or reform things. I mean, you know, the act of cutting something up implies you're transitioning it to something else. So there's some other cool ideas in there. Um, it's just, it's a fun way to analyze objects, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, because c- what's interesting, um, 
is the the concept of implements, domains, and familiars all tell us so much about the the pr- practitioner, but but in different ways. Like you know, yeah. your implement is is almost saying more about how you think of yourself than than you know what's something that's actually true. Whereas um, mm. I think a a domain is probably more indicative of actually what you are like than um than just like how you think of yourself and how you choose to operate. Uh, and then obviously a familiar mm. is not necessarily saying as much about you uh, directly, but it kind of shows your other half. Um, you know, it's it's you know we we kept having it compared to dating and marriage, um, yeah. and so these three systems sort of play off each other in such interesting ways, and and each give you different insights into into the person. Uh, it's it's so cool. Yeah, I like that now we kind of know more about this as we meet new characters and see more details of, you know, implements or whatever for other characters we meet. It lets us kind of analyze them even from just a physical description in a lot more interesting of a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, uh, and we saw that in this chapter, the practitioner guy had his pockets picked and, and um, a wand was pulled out. And so I was instantly making judgments about him based on that. Yep. Bland, am I right? <laughs> British. Um, yep, British, totally. <laughs> of course, that's why I fucked it up. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's the end of Damages. <laughs> um, we will be back in a few days on the 15th of February to be talking about uh, the new arc, Arc 3 Breach 3.1. Yeah, um, and so you can find out more details on the show and and all that sort of thing by going to the Doof Media website, which is doofmedia.com. Yep. If you want to support us making the show or some of the other great podcasts on the Doof Media uh, website, you can check out patreon.com slash doofmedia. Yes. Uh, and while you're there, don't forget to stop by Wildbo's Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Wildbo, since obviously he writes all these stories that we love talking about so much. Yeah, and I think we should give a shout-out to the Pact Audiobook Project as well. Um, it took a bit of a hiatus yeah. recently, but uh, Speedchuck, who is behind the project, has started uh, updating it again, and you will see more Pact Audiobook chapters coming out. It's a it's a great way to force yourself to experience the story a bit slower and uh, listen through to it. <laughs> um, if you are listening through to the story with us and you want to uh, talk about it with us, you can check out our discussion threads where we kind of engage with people who want to theory craft or ship Maggie and Blake or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> discussion threads will be in the show notes of this podcast down below. Yeah. And that's basically it. Review us on iTunes if you'd like. You can check out our Twitter and we'll see you in on the 15th of February for Breaches 3.1. Bye.